We are in week two of our series called Seven Letters. And we are looking at the letters that were written by the Apostle John, the voice of Jesus, in the, in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we see seven churches, seven letters. They were actual churches that existed. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus and how the one thing that God had against them was that they had lost their first love, right? And he gives them a remedy to remember, return, or remember, repent, and return. If you are to travel some 35 or 40 miles north of the city of Ephesus, you would hit this next city, the city of Smyrna. Now, what's interesting about this letter is this is one of the two letters that was written where Jesus didn't have anything bad to say about them, but he kind of had some bad news for them. <laughs> and we'll see that here in a little portion of this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. He says to them, he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. They were getting ready to be tested. Now, how many of you guys know that in between every promise of God and the promise being fulfilled, there are things that come along that test, right? There are things that come along that test to test to see if what we say we believe is actually what we believe. See, there, there's a test, there's a time period in between there that, that challenges us to see if what we say we believe is actually what we believe because it's easy to be in love with the idea of something and not actually with the actual something. You know what I'm saying? It's easy to be in love with the idea. Let me give you an example of this. You know, in the world of investing, a lot of us think, oh man, I need to invest for retirement or invest to, to make good investments for it. And, and then, so it doesn't matter whether you're investing in gold and silver and Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, S&P, whatever it is, real estate, you, you make your investment and in between the investment being made and the return on your investment, there are sometimes, especially in weeks like we've had, like the test whether I want to really stay in this or not, right? Because things go like this, right? And they kind of test you to see if you are really going to be in it for the long haul or if you're just in love with the idea of investing, right? Other areas of life, I know, I remember uh, years ago, my wife, Becca, and I, we, we were thinking, man, wouldn't it be awesome to, like, have a dog that, like, just sits by the fireplace and just, like, has that classic, we're drinking a cup of coffee, there's a dog by the fireplace, and, and so we, we started to kind of think about that, and then all of a sudden, somehow we ended up with three dogs. I don't know how that happened, except for I have multiple kids. We end up with three dogs, and they don't really sit by the fireplace that much. One of them, if we let it off the hook, it will run forever. Another one will run and get lost. He has no GPS built in. He cannot find himself back home. Uh, the other one is scared of our ceiling fan. I don't know how that happened at all, but it's all true. And so we quickly found out we, we weren't in love with the idea, or we weren't in love with having a dog. We were in love with the idea of having a dog. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And how many of you guys have like one of those little dogs? Anybody have one of those little yappy dogs? <laughs> why? Why do you do that? I don't know why you do that. Because at four in the morning, you get the little yappy, 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 right? And uh, I mean, I, I'm just saying, if your dog is lower on the food chain than your cat, You may not have a dog. Just, just might want to reevaluate that, right? You were in love with the idea of having a dog. I don't know if you really got one or not, but, but some people, I'm going to get, I'm going to get emails now. I'm not on Facebook anymore, so you can't get me there. So, um, 
But, but some people are in love with the idea of love, even. Like, we, we, we think we, we know what love is, but we're in love with just the idea of love. And then you get into a real relationship. How many of you guys have ever been into a real relationship before? And all of a sudden, the idea that you had of love evaporates very quickly, right? That's why we have so many divorces. That's why we have so many conflicts in relationships. It's because somewhere along the line, someone found out, I was just in love with the idea of love. Because actual love, you have to approach it a lot differently to be in it for the long haul. And, and I bring all that up to say this, when we're talking about the church in Smyrna, I mean, they had to face some realities pretty quick. Some people can be in love with the idea of following Jesus and not the actual following. And that's why we have a lot of wishy-washy, barely make it to church. That's why we have a lot of stuff like that happen is because we are in love with the idea of following Jesus, but not with the actual following. Because following Jesus comes at a cost. You know that, right? And the church in Smyrna found that out, that it, it comes at a cost. And I would just suggest that if following Jesus isn't costing you in some way, you might want to reevaluate if you're actually following. If you were to take Jesus out of the mix of your life and your life would barely change, I would, I would suggest that maybe we're merely in love with the idea of following Jesus and not the actual following. Because somewhere along the way, if you really follow Jesus, it will cost you in some way. It will disrupt your life. It will disrupt, and I mean in a good way, but also in a challenging way. It will disrupt your life. It will interrupt your plans. It will, there, you will come to a crossroads at times when what you think is right and what God thinks is right come at a conflict with one another, and you have to choose to go against your instinct and to go with God's. That, that's what it'll be like one day. And if you're always, if God always agrees with you, Well, my God would never say that. Well, I don't know uh, what God you're following because there are times when I get argue in an argument with God, you know? He always wins, but it takes a while sometimes, right? But 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 highlights this. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. You know, most Christians that I've encountered don't really think that way. They're, I mean, we get, a, we get a fiery trial or we get a test in any way, shape, or form. We're surprised, and we definitely don't take it like this verse takes it. But the church in Smyrna had to make that decision very quickly because their lives were on the line, right? In fact, many of them, that 10-day test would end in their martyrdom, and many of them died for the sake of Jesus. And I'll put this up on the screen, but according to Henry C. Sheldon's History of the Christian Church, it tells the, of the martyrdom of Christians at Smyrna. It says it this way, some were thrown to wild beasts, some burned at the stake. But according to the memorial of the church, the grace given to the martyrs was equal to their sufferings. Not one of them let out a sigh, let a sigh or groan escape them. That's where we say the rubber meets the road, right? Like, that's where it's like, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. 
All right, so let's, let's get a little bit of a history of the city of Smyrna, the church that is in Smyrna, and some things that happened. And I, I could tell you about it, but it's much more fun to show you, give you some visuals. And so here's the history of the church and the history of Smyrna. Let's watch. Smyrna, an ancient city now surrounded by the modern Turkish city of Izmir, was originally established around 1000 BC. Greek settlers established Old Smyrna on this small peninsula jutting out into the Aegean Sea. Now, it was in Old Smyrna that the famous Greek poet Homer, author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, was born around 850 BC. History tells us that a shrine to Homer stood in the city during the Roman period. After the time of Alexander the Great in the late 4th century BC, New Smyrna was built by the Seleucids along the coast and up these slopes of Mount Pagus. Now this region eventually developed into Asia province during the Roman period and Smyrna, strategically located between Ephesus to the south and Pergamum to the north, developed into a wealthy port city. In fact, it was one of the most important cities of the entire province with a population of nearly 100,000 residents. During the Roman period, ancient historians said that Smyrna was a city of great beauty and impressive architecture that circled Mount Pegasus like a crown. There was a great harbor, a massive agora, and a theater on the northwest mountain slope that could hold 20,000 people. This wealthy city was also known for its exceptionally good wine. Smyrna was severely damaged by an earthquake in 178 AD, but was quickly rebuilt. Now the layout of the city we see here today and most of these structures are pretty much the same as they were in the late first century when John was writing. Here's a portion of John's second letter in the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Revelation 2, 8 through 10. In this letter, John pointed out that the Christians in Smyrna had experienced major oppression. They were poor, but also rich, alluding to the city's reputation as being pagan and also wealthy. John's letter went on to mention blasphemy by the Jews here in Smyrna, who he called part of a synagogue of Satan. The letter went on to indicate that some of the Christians here in Smyrna would be thrown into prison, but John called them to be faithful, even unto death. This letter was written during the time of Roman persecution of Christians under Emperor Domitian. In fact, the church here at Smyrna was under more opposition than most due to the strong influence of emperor worship here in the city. Now, people were compelled to offer sacrifices of worship to the Roman Caesar. Oh, hey, little buddy. I oftentimes have this effect on animals and people. Now, during the time of John, emperor worship was required by Roman law. Failure to participate was punishable by imprisonment or even death. 
Now, scholars differ as to the reference synagogue of Satan, but it probably referred to the Jews who not only opposed Christianity, but were participating in the Roman imperial cult. As for later church history, Polycarp, a famous historian and student of the Apostle John, was martyred here in Smyrna in about 156 AD. According to tradition, Polycarp was pierced with a spear and burned at the stake for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. His final words, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ. All right, so a lot of history there. You can kind of get a feel for what was going on. And most of us probably aren't going to experience that 10-day test of, you know, leading to martyrdom. We're probably going to experience something more like Daniel. You remember Daniel had a 10-day test, and it was that he was not going to compromise uh, to the culture and not going to eat the king's delicacies for 10 days. And that's, kind of, that's where a lot of us are going to be at. We're going to face this, uh, these kinds of tests in between, you know, the promises of God and the fulfillment of the promises of God, or in between this idea of following Jesus and actually following, we're going to be tested with this thing to be faithful to Jesus and to the Jesus way and to the kingdom of God when the culture is constantly trying to compromise us. And so what do these tests look like in our life? Well, let me just rattle off four of them real quick, okay? These are things that might test us that we need to stand firm in. Number one is the test of temptations, you know, we all have temptations that come that try to get us to pull us off the course, right? And the, this is Satan's attempt to get us to name our price. This is Satan's attempt, you know, if he can get us to name our price, well, I'll just, you know, just, just a little bit of compromise here, just a little bit of temptation here, just, a, you know, cheat on your taxes here, it's okay. And he's named our price, right? And we don't think it's that big of a deal, but what is he doing? He's, getting, he's testing the idea. We, we get tested in this thing. Are we in love with the idea of following Jesus? Or even when it's hard, and even in the little things, are we going to follow Jesus? Or are we going to compromise and sell out for such a small price? The good news is, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Anytime you're tempted, just know there's a way of, an escape, of, way of escape in Jesus Christ. We don't have to lean into it. We don't have to give into it. We're not victims of it, but we can walk through it. All right, number two, the test of trials. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says it this way. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Trials lead to patience. I don't know if you're like me, but I don't like either one of those things. I don't like trials, and I don't like patience. Like, the testing of my faith produces patience. Why can't it produce an apple pie or something that I like? Why can't it? I, I don't, like, give me something right there. But it does, it produces patience. And trials are something that's used by Satan to try to get us to, te to, to test the idea of whether we actually believe in the goodness of God. Because some of us are in a trial right now, and we're questioning that. Is God really good? Is God really faithful? Is God really all that he says that he is? 
You see, it's the test in between when you say you want to follow Jesus, the idea of following Jesus, and the actual following. Can you follow Jesus even during a trial? Can you be consistent in that? See, that's the test that we face. All right, number three, the test of trouble. Now, you might say, well, trouble and trial kind of sounds the same. They're actually a little bit different. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9. Paul says this. He says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, I want you to see there, he says, an open door. How do many of us in the Christian world, when we, how many times have you prayed, God, open a door? You got three opportunities, you know, three job opportunities. God, I'm praying for an open door. All of a sudden you pray, and then one of the job things opens up. It looks like the path is clear. You say, that's the open door from God. How many of you guys have done that before, right? You know, nobody wants to admit that. Okay, it's okay. The camera's just facing me. It's not facing you. It's all right. You're not on record. But that's the way a lot of times we are. We're facing situations and circumstances. We have decisions to make. And so what do we do? We say, God, show me the open door. And we, we interpret open doors. Listen to me. We interpret open doors by the path of least resistance. And we assume that the path of least resistance between all three options is the open door. But that's not how Paul determined open doors from God. He says, a wide door has opened to me for effective work. And what does he say? And there's a lot of trouble. It's going to be some problems. It's going to be a hard time. But it's an open door. See, many times open doors in your life are disguised as opposition. Many times open doors in your life are disguised as trouble. Many times open doors in your life are are disguised as persecution, as delay, as failure even at times, as disappointment. The question is, are we going to have the discernment to discern which doors are open from God and walk through them even if it looks like there are many adversaries? Because here's the thing. An open door is simply an opportunity to use our faith. And if every open door you have in your life or the ones you interpret you have don't give you an opportunity to exercise faith, it may not be an open door from God. Because there are times when you're going to have to go through some things. In fact, Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 32 says it this way. Jesus is saying saying this. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. I want you to understand this. Jesus understood that Simon was getting ready to go through some things, that Satan was going to sift him like wheat. And watch the prayer Jesus prayed. He didn't pray that, that Peter could avoid it. He said, I pray that your faith will not fail. See, there are times, yes, when we get delivered out of things, and please hear me, I'm not talking about God putting sickness on you or something and you just got to deal with it. That's not the God that we serve. I'm just saying there are times when we go through circumstances in life or trouble or open doors that come with adversaries that we would love to be delivered from. But what if Jesus is praying not that you would be delivered, but that your faith would be stronger? What What if everything that you're going through in your life circumstantially, all the things that you're interpreting as I need to get out of, what if those things were exactly where God wanted you to be right now? What if those hard things that he's asking you to do are exactly where God wants you to be? And and you need to stop praying to be delivered from those things, but start to pray that God would help you to have faith to go through those things in a way that glorifies and honors him. See, that tests our faith at times, right? 
when you got to stick with something. See, sometimes the hardest thing is not to make a change in your life, but it's to stick with something in your life. The hardest thing sometimes is to pray your way through something that's hard rather than just get out of it, right? All right, number four, the test of those people. How many of you guys have those people in your life, right? Whoever those people are. And how many of you guys know people can test you to see if you are in love with the idea of following Jesus or actually following Jesus, right? And those people could be a range of people. It could be people on the other side of the political aisle and you're watching the news and it's always those people, right? And it tests your faith. Do I really believe in the fruit of the Spirit or not, right? I heard one time, you know, we, we can sometimes get caught up in all the stuff, news and the politics, and, and, you know, we should stand up for what's right, and we should do all these things. How do you know if you've gone too far standing up for what's right? How do you know if you've gone too far or you're doing it the wrong way, I should say? How do you know? The moment that you're not displaying the fruit of the Spirit. The moment that you've lost the fruit of the Spirit and you're standing up for what's right is the moment that you've crossed the line that Jesus isn't on the other side of. Boy, it's really quiet in here. I didn't say that in the other service, so you guys really needed to hear that. I don't know why. I'm just going with that. <laughs> uh, but those people can really, and those people could be sitting right next to you, by the way. You're gonna maybe see some of them this afternoon because how many of you guys know that sometimes the closest people to us challenge us the most to see if we really wanna follow Jesus or not or we're just in love with the idea of following Jesus, okay? So I know it's really tense in here right now. So it's Mother's Day, kind of lighten it up and just you know, kind of you know, get the feel of kind of how this works in our real life and how those people challenge us. Take a look, Mother's Day. And now, a Mother's Day moment. You know, Mother's Day is that special day every year where we celebrate the women who brought us uh, into the world. Honey, it actually I, took 12 hours with you. Well, that's right, that's right. My mom was in labor for 12 hours. Thank you, Mom, for reminding me. This is the day that we appreciate all of the hard work and child-rearing years that our mothers... Honey, sit up and enunciate your sentences. And apparently, I need to sit up and enunciate my sentences. Thank you, Mother. A famous person once said, all that I am or hope to be, I owe to my mother. Now, for me... Now, who said that? I don't know who said it, Mom. Oh, I think it hmm? was JFK. I don't know. Maybe it was JFK. I don't know. I, I know I need to do this, though, right now. So. Don't you sass me. I'm not sassing you. Since moms are there from the beginning, it's really no coincidence that mama is typically a child's first I mean, I'm not sure that shirt's I like this shirt. Not dressy enough. It's plenty dressy. Well, put on what I bought you. I don't want to wear that. I gave it to you. I know you gave it to me. I don't want to wear it. You know, a mother's love is something that every child wants. I know I did, and I still do. I... Oh. Oh, that's Douglas. Well, answer it, pumpkin. I'm filming. Hello? Uh-huh. Tell him hello. Oh, mom says hi. Great. Don't care. Bye. Well, it seems that my mom's favorite son is going to be joining us for lunch. Now, honey, what? don't be rude. That's not rude. That's nice. If you can't say anything what? nice, don't say anything at all. Hmm, then I guess I won't say anything at all. Great, Douglas is here. Douglas? Daryl. Hey, is this for mom? Hey, can't you just go in the other room for five minutes? Mother's Day means Honey, a lot of... we do not live in a barn. What are you talking about? Who said anything about living in a barn? 
But my favorite memory growing up would have to be when, when you I- you went to bed in 10th grade? Hold on. Oh, this is over, pal. Stop it. No, this right is my now. gift Boys, to mom, listen, man. Stop. It, stop. Well, I you said, can settle down, pal. Stop it. So I hope that all you mothers out there have a happy Mother's Day. <laughs> love you, mom. I love you, too. Yeah, those people. Those people, right? Contest that, right? Offenses, conflict, right? All these things test whether we are in love with the idea of following Jesus or whether we are actually going to follow Jesus, right? For the church in Smyrna, it wasn't trivial things like that. It wasn't trivial things. They had to, there was no place for consumer Christianity. There's no place for half-hearted following Jesus. There's no place for, oh, maybe I'll make it to church or maybe I'll serve somebody or maybe I'll, I'll I'll, you know, be in the presence of God today. There was no place for that. They had to face reality very, very quickly. And there, there was no place for that. I'm going to play church one day and live a different way at home. There was no place for that, right? They had to face, because, there, you know, we talked about that there was a, an emperor worship that was going on. It was a cult-like worship where the emperor they treated as God and worshiped as God. And in fact, you would go so far as at any time you could be stopped along, just in the street, any, anybody could stop you, a Roman guard could stop you and get you to say that Caesar is Lord or the emperor is Lord. And, get you, and if you did not do that, it was punishable by death, Right? Now, the Jews were exempt from this because they had become a legalized religion. And what was happening, sadly, during that time is that the Jews were, were at odds with the Christians. And they were outing them and, and telling, you know, what, you know, here's where the Christians live. Here's where the church is. Here's all this stuff. And so there was that conflict that was happening there in the scriptures as you read that. And so they had to make a decision every day whether they were going to follow Jesus now, thank God we don't have that today, right, where we live, where you can't, I mean, you'd be stopped and like if you don't say that so-and-so is Lord or Caesar is Lord or whatever, but how many times do we fall into the same traps, even in the culture that we live in today, where we elevate these certain heroes in our life and almost worship them as God? We certainly see them as our Savior at times. Well, uh, you know, I think this this political party is going to save us, or that political party is going to save us, or this president's going to save us, or that president's going to save us, or this. And we elevate these things in our heart to an unhealthy level, right? And I know that, that sometimes we don't think about it that way, but in some ways we've elevated these heroes in our life to a place where we, instead of trusting in God to save us, we trust in man to save us. And in that way, we have somehow given them our worship. See, whoever you trust to be your Savior is your God. And if we trust in certain places or people or governments or whatever to be our Savior functionally, if that's really where our heart is, they have become our God and they have become our Savior. They've become what we worship. So we have to repent of that as, as believers. We have to repent of that as believers. And just like the church in Smyrna, if they were stopped and they were commanded to say that, you know, that Caesar is Lord, they would say, I cannot say Caesar is Lord because there's only one Lord in my life and Jesus is Lord. And we have to get back to the point where we say there's only one Lord in my life. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is where my hope comes from. Everything else is, is not, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And you're probably not going to die because you take that stand. 
But something probably needs to die in you if you are going to take that stand. Something has to die on the inside of us if we're actually going to take that stand. And, and that's what Smyrna had to do. That's what the church in Smyrna had to do. And so he tells them in this letter, in different, three different spots, he tells them some instructions. He says to be faithful. He tells them do not fear, which is one of the most uh, repeated statements in Scripture. Do not fear. But then he tells them something else that's interesting. He says you are poor, but you're actually rich. He's reminding them of true riches that they actually have. He's reminding them of real value. And so I really have one point today, and, and we're really wrapping up here, but I really have one point, even though it seems like I've had a lot. I have one. Here's the point. Reset your price. See, he reminded them, you're poor, but you're actually rich. He was reminding them of what real price is, of what real value is, of what that number actually is. Let me give you an example of this. Polycarp, we mentioned Polycarp earlier. He was actually the protege of John. He was a respected pastor in Smyrna. And he was somewhere in his 80s at this time. And he had found out that the Romans had decided to come after him and kill him. And that he was going to be a martyr. And so his friends gathered around him and was like, hey, we got to get you out of here. And he's like, no, I'm going to stand firm. Like, I'm, I've lived for Jesus all my life. I'm going to stand firm. And finally, they talk him into going to an estate that's like outside of the city, kind of a, a secluded place. And he goes out to the secluded place. And while he's there, he has a vision. And we don't know exactly what the vision is, but he concludes, we do know what he concludes at the end of the vision. And that is, he tells them, he says, I know that I must be burned alive. That's great news, right? <laughs> like, and he says, I know I must be burned alive. Then they find out that the Romans know where they're at and they're gonna come after him to get him and his friends try to get him to run away again and he says, no, I'm not going to run and he actually lets them in. And they take him to wherever they're gonna go and, and uh, interrogate him and, and uh, all this stuff and they get him to say, they try to get him to say that Caesar is Lord. And he says, no, I can't do that. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I can't do that. And they said, well, then you're going to face the beasts. And I love Polycarp because he says it this way, something to this effect. He says, well, then bring on your beasts. You have to have decided to follow Jesus at that point, right? And then they said, well, if you scorn the beasts, then we'll have you burned at the stake. And he says this. He says, he says that you may try to frighten me with the fire that burns for an hour and you forget the fire of hell that never burns out. He, he had settled something, right? He, then they begin to burn him at the stake. And the person who was overseeing it, this may sound a little disturbing, but the person overseeing it said, his flesh really wasn't burning in the way you think it would. It was almost like bread baking. It was almost like gold being refined by fire. What did Polycarp do? Polycarp named his price. Somewhere along the way in Polycarp's life, he had set his price, and the world could not afford him. Somewhere he set his price, and the world could not buy him. The only currency that could buy him was Jesus. There is no other currency. There was not a currency on earth that could buy him, there was the only currency that could buy him was Jesus. How many times have we set our price so low that almost anything can buy us away from the call of God? Oh, we get a little, we get a little frustrated or we get angry with somebody, it buys us away from the call of God. 
We get offended at something. It buys us away from the call of God. We, you know, how, how little does it take to buy us away from integrity? As I said earlier, you know, oh, just a little cheat on the taxes here. Just a little, you know, uh, whatever here and there. Nobody will know. And it buys away our heart from the things of God. How, many, how little does it take to buy us away from unity in the church? How little does it take to buy us away from the purposes and plans of God for our life? How little does it take to buy us away from integrity? Reset your price. Be like Polycarp, who the world could not afford him. The only currency that could buy him was Jesus. He had this on his heart as the worship team comes back up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, some of us need to reset the price in our heart and say, Jesus already bought me. I'm not for sale. Jesus already bought me. I'm not for sale. An, an offense can't buy me. Trouble can't buy me. Distraction can't buy me. A trial can't buy me. A temptation can't buy me away from the purposes of God. Those people, whoever those people are, can't buy me away from the plans and purposes of God. My own desires can't buy me away from the purposes of God. My life, even the value that I have for my life, I've already been bought by Jesus. And the world can't afford me. Some of us just need to make this declaration that I'm not going to let anything buy me away from the kingdom purposes of God for my life. Reset that down deep in your heart. And so would you guys stand up with me as we close? I want to remind you of what Jesus was reminding the church in Smyrna of. Jesus was reminding them as they were facing this 10-day test. He was reminding them that there's something worse than death. And that's being lost without Jesus. And he was reminding them that there's something better than life. And that's being found in Jesus. And they had to make that decision. Am I in love with the idea of following Jesus? Or am I in love with Jesus? And I just want to remind us today to reset our price. To remind ourselves that we have been bought with a price. That Jesus laid down his life on the cross. He paid the price for our sins. He rose from the dead that he might give us life. And by doing that, for anyone who would say yes to Jesus, you have been bought with a price. Your sins have been washed away. You've been made a new creation. You have been bought with a price. You've been bought by Jesus. And there's nothing in this world that can buy you away from that. There's nothing in this world. Make this determination that, there's not, that the world cannot afford you. That the world cannot afford you because Jesus has set such a high price. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, for that high price that you paid for us. Lord, help us to be faithful like the church in Smyrna. Help us to see their example of following you and be encouraged and inspired. But, Lord, let that not just be an inspiration to us. Watch something down deep on the inside of us. Help us to remind ourselves of the price that you paid for us. And that there is something worse than death, and that's being lost. And there's something better than life, and that's being found in you. And so, Lord, we remind ourselves of that today as we worship you. In Jesus' name, let's worship.